Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the After the Vote, What Comes Next conference call hosted by BMO. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Thanks, man. Good morning, everyone. On behalf of BMO Financial Group and, of course, BMO Capital Markets, thank you for joining our call today. We say what we mean and we mean what we say. Last Wednesday, we were on the call and said we would schedule another call when we knew uh, what the result of the election uh, was. And over the weekend, obviously, we heard news that candidate Joe Biden turned into President-elect Joe Biden. So we're here today to provide guidance uh, from BMO Financial Group with respect to what comes next in terms of not only the U.S., but also Canada, specifically in terms of the economy, the bond market, and the equity markets. Joining myself today will be Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory, Head of Fixed Income, Commodity, and Currency Strategy, Margaret Karens, and myself with Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We will be doing Q&A as well, so please queue up your questions uh, while we speak. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Sure thing. Thanks, Brian. Well, in addition to uh, President-elect Biden that you mentioned, uh, the uh, the Senate and House races, are, are, uh, and some key ones there, are, are still continuing. But according to the Wall Street Journal and Associated Press, it's sort of 48-48 in terms of the Senate count, but with uh, two Republican candidates leading in their respective uh, races. So presuming uh, they they end up uh, getting those uh, you're looking at a 48 to 50 uh, uh, uh democrat versus a republican split and the key thing here is that in georgia both uh, the special and uh, regular senate races are going to be heading to a runoff on january 5th so we're not quite sure yet exactly uh, uh with respect to the balance of power in the senate which is critically important for assessing uh, uh, the economic and policy implications of a Biden presidency, at least in the very near term. Uh, that said, uh, of those two races in Georgia, we know uh, that the Republican had a slight lead in one, and uh, and in the other, the Republicans actually split the vote. So it's it's looking pretty uh, uh, low odds, at least at this stage, one would think, of uh, the Democrats uh, winning both seats. Uh, and therefore getting a 50-50 a, a, a split in the Senate, which would then give the uh, deciding vote to uh, President-elect Harris. So, uh, you know, and, and in the Senate, of course, uh, sorry, in the House, uh, it, it does look like that the, uh, uh, the the Democrats will hold on to their majority, albeit with a, with a slimmer margin uh, to the tune of about, they lost about five seats, it looks like, on balance to the Republicans. So, Basically, we got a new president and I guess a, an old Congress in terms of at least the, the, the political party makeup. So we can think a little bit more seriously now about the policy and economic implications. Obviously, the most important thing here is what kind of a fiscal stimulus package we do get in the near term, uh, if not in the lame duck session early in the new Congress. Uh, is interesting on Wednesday, uh, uh, newly reelected uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, McConnell said that a passing a fiscal stimulus package was the first order of a business. But after Friday's uh, employment report, he did say that uh, he would sort of favor something uh, again on the uh, smaller size. Of course, the uh, Democrat before we went uh, uh, to break bef uh, before the election, the Democrats were still touting their package of 2.2 trillion. The last we had in terms of uh, McConnell favoring something was that $500 billion uh, package uh, that the GOP 
uh, what was pushing in the Senate. So it does seem that there's a pretty far gulf there between the two. Uh, I, we do think our working assumption is we're going to get a package that's running a little bit closer to, to a trillion, uh, up to a trillion, uh, for the simple reason when we're now with a second wave of uh, COVID-19 unfolding before our eyes, uh, that, that will present a sufficient headwind uh, for uh, uh, for the economy, we do think that uh, uh, Congress will will step up. I mean, there are three major elements of a, of a pa- uh, package we're lo- we we expect to be uh, in there. Firstly, the pandemic unemployment assistance and the pandemic emergency unemployment compensation programs expire at the end of this month. I uh, sorry, the end of December. Sorry, uh, and there are still, according to the latest figures, more than 13 million Americans still on that program. Sorry, those programs and. Uh, uh, and uh, they, you know, they'll lose their benefits if, if uh, they uh, uh, those don't get extended. The other aspect, of course, is the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, it, it, it's already closed. Uh, we expect that it's going to be reopened with a little additional funding to help many small and medium-sized businesses get over this second, or at least uh, withstand this second wave. Uh, although we do think there'll be a little bit more stringency involved in in, in that sort of PPP uh, second version of it, for the simple reason of all the reports of, of some fraudulent activity going on in, in select quarters. And then finally, with, with state and local governments now in battle yet again uh, against uh, COVID-19, uh, extra funding uh, for those jurisdictions. So again, roughly pushing uh, upwards to about a trillion dollars. In terms of other policies we might expect with a split Congress and a, a Biden uh, presidency, uh, obviously a, a lot of major things aren't going to get passed. The, the notion of big spending and, and tax hikes uh, have been quashed for now, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know the administration may have to uh, uh, rely on executive action to get a few things done uh, on its agenda. Uh, and and, uh, and in fact, uh, the uh, uh, representatives of the Biden team have indicated, in fact, that's that that's their game plan, including uh, uh, pushing up, uh, getting America back on the Paris Treaty on Climate Change, which, by the way, America officially exited on on Wednesday. Uh, after uh, the delay of indicating they wanted to uh, to leave, uh, and also, uh, for example, uh, um, you know, changing regulations on the U.S. leaving the World Health Organization, and also on the uh, restrictions on Dreamers, and uh, and of course on you know rolling back where where they can various environment environmental and regulatory pol- uh, policies that. Uh, uh, that that fits within their uh, agenda. We don't think there'll be enough there uh, to really either dent uh, our economic projection much or rather bolster it at, at the same time. And we still are holding to our view for about 4% average growth for next year, following a, f- a 3.5% average decline uh, for this year. For those of you that look at things on a, on a fourth over fourth basis, uh, th- that is uh, 3.4% growth for next year after a 2.5% gl- decline for next year. Now, if we end up with a fiscal package that is pretty skinny on, uh, uh, say, well under that 500, uh, 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 well under the, so that 1 trillion mark, uh, you know, push closer to that 500 billion uh, or less, uh, that would obviously be a, a near-term hit to growth. Uh, something bigger than, than sort of the close to 1 trillion we're kind of expecting would, would be a positive. And of course, it, it's not only the, the prospects for a fiscal package, either in the lame duck session or early in the new Congress, that's going to matter how things unfold. It will also be the uh, unfolding uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We saw on Friday that new infections, the seven-day average, uh, uh, topped 97,000. 
uh, will likely top uh, 100,000 when uh, the figures for the weekend are finally uh, 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 all added up. Uh, uh, now, the good news from that perspective is, and we saw that with uh, uh, Pfizer's announcement this morning, that the sort of the three criteria to really put this thing behind us in a material way, as far as the economy is concerned, an effective, safe, and widely available vaccine. It seems like we're making a little more headway uh, on on that first tranche, that that, that effective vaccine with, with Pfizer's uh, notification that it looks like it's about 90% effective. Great news, obviously, it's caused the stock market to rally this morning. That said, we're still, you know, some ways away between the, you know, the safety it has been proven as well as it becoming widely available. So we still do have a sort of an autumn and winter season that is looking a little bit bleak. And therefore, you know, we, we are expecting that uh, we will get, that's the reason why we will get that uh, fiscal stimulus package uh, in the next few months. Finally, just for some quick implications here. Oh, b- by the way, I, I just, an, another avenue, I think, that may help the economy a bit here. Uh, in, in a new administration, we're likely to get a new Treasury Secretary uh, and, and a potential for uh, uh, less stringent rules being uh, applied to the Fed's various lending facilities. Uh, of course, as everyone knows, the Treasury has provided capital uh, for for those uh, lending programs and uh, and and uh, and so the, the stringency of those lending programs over borrowers and lenders has been one of the reasons why some have argued why they have not been uh, a stronger take up. And of course, uh, we didn't see much from the Fed last week, not surprisingly, given we're in the middle of a pretty contentious election. But the, the talk of a extending term of uh, their uh, asset purchases uh, continues to be a uh, you know very much on the table and likely to provide uh, some support going uh, forward if they do go down that path. And I'm sure Mark will have some more comments on that in a second. Finally, with respect to Canada, uh, obviously, uh, um, you know, uh, prospects for continued U.S. growth is the number one uh, benefit here of, of a, uh, for Canada. And, uh, and of course, we're going to have a potentially less rancorous sort of trade environment, at least within North America, which also, you know, is definitely a slight positive. But, you know, the, uh, the, over the weekend, officials from the, the Biden team didn't reindicate that they plan on uh, pulling the permission of uh, uh, Keystone XL, which uh, pipeline, which of course is uh, doesn't bode well for for Canada's energy sector, and uh, and another I think factor too, which is you know the other implication is that with uh, it, it being unlikely uh, uh, that uh, the uh, a Biden administration will be able to pass a meaningfully higher. Uh, corporate taxes, uh, at least over the next two years, uh, that does uh, limit the scope for Ottawa uh, to uh, move or maneuver on that front as well uh, from a relative perspective. Okay, I'll leave things uh, at this point for now, and I'll turn things over to my colleague, uh, Margaret Cairns. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone, for calling in today. We really appreciate it. I know the market, uh, with the volatility and everything going on, it's uh, it's difficult to to dial in. Uh, you know, first of all, the way that we're looking at the market, the world does remain in the grips of this global pandemic with the rising case counts, as Michael mentioned, and the additional lockdowns. But over the past week, we have made substantial progress on several hurdles. And of course, the hurdles are the U.S. elections, the pandemic case, the stimulus, vaccine progress and the fundamentals of the economy. So three things basically happened since our call last week. First, of course, the election has been called in favor of Biden over the weekend. 
while President Trump is challenging the results and not expected to concede the election anytime soon, uh, that was kind of expected by the market, and the market's looking past it. Also, uh, a divided Congress is sort of being priced like a Goldilocks situation in, in Washington, uh, so that's good for the market. Second, of course, the big news was Pfizer's announcement on the vaccine front with the preliminary results showing its vaccine prevented more than 90% of the COVID infections, which moves us closer to clearing the next hurdle. Uh, the main market uh, implication with regard to the vaccines, like Michael mentioned, uh, you know, is it effective? Is it safe? Is it widely available? And this is, we're passing apparently the effective uh, hurdle, which is, which is a big deal. Um, so that moves us much closer to moving on to the safety production and distribution and public trust uh, hurdles. Third, Friday's employment report was stronger than expected. We have private payroll gains of you know, 906,000, basically just under a million. The unemployment rate falling to 6.9%. Uh, over the past six months, the U.S. economy has gained back 12 million of the 22 million jobs that were lost. Now we still have the 10 million to go, uh, and the pace of the gains has been slowing, but it's still remarkable that we've had 55% of uh, the lost jobs regained, which is bringing some positive momentum to the market. So those three things, clearing the election hurdle, moving uh, great progress on the vaccine hurdle, and continuation of positive news on the economic front, um, have all supported uh, the market momentum here. Um, and as, as we were watching the market this morning, we are seeing 10-year yields backing up uh, to the pre-election result level where we hit intraday last week of 95 and a half and we're basically there again. And one theme that we you know, had been really discussing over the past several weeks is you know, where the market was heading into the election was going to be our pivot point for what we expected uh, after the election. And that's exactly what we're seeing playing out right now. The bearish underpinnings are there. Uh, they're, they're, and we do continue to expect a move toward 1%, which you know, clearly isn't as big of a deal now that we're back at 95 and a half uh, versus you know, when we were in the 70s uh, last week. Uh, but that's what we are continuing to expect. Some people are obviously in the marketplace questioning um, whether or not we'll see an earlier Fed liftoff and if that'll start getting priced into the front end a little bit more. And we've got a little bit of a backup, nothing meaningful uh, in twos. And in terms of the front end of the curve, you know, we dismissed any thoughts of an earlier liftoff for the Fed on the back of any uh, stronger economic data or the you know, positive employment report from last week. And, and it's really based on the reality that as time marches forward, the impact of aging demographics and the increased uh, entitlement spending um, will continue to drag on economic growth. And you know, one, one of the things we've talked about quite a bit is that the non-discretionary spending as a percentage of total spending over the past several decades has really increased quite dramatically. And that reduces the flexibility that any uh, Congress and administration uh, might have going forward with regard to trying to cut deficits. So we do expect the Fed to remain on hold and the front end to be pegged down and the curve to uh, steepen on the back of that. 
another thing that we spoke about last week on the call uh, was credit spreads. Uh, and what we are seeing uh, this morning is credit spreads continuing to narrow by four to five basis points. And we are now at new post-pandemic types. Uh, the IG index is around 112 basis points. Uh, that's about 20 basis points wider than the January uh, types, but of course substantially tighter uh, than, than the wide reach in March. And we do continue to expect record tight next year as the economy recovers and investors reach for yield in a very accommodative uh, Fed environment. Uh, so that's, I can pass it now to um, back to Brian Balski. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Great comments, and Michael as well. With respect to equities, both in the U.S. and Canada, still in a big bull market. The construct of the bull market uh, may change a little bit uh, with a president-elect Biden and a split Congress. But keep in mind, too, the key thing is that we still don't know uh, about the Senate. Michael's spot on with respect to where the polls are. Again, it may be too early. Uh, to make those decisions. And the big thing, as Michael said, and which everyone can agree on, is this notion of taxes and spending changes dramatically if indeed uh, we do have more of a blue wave uh, in Congress. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. That's why we continue to stress with clients that uh, really want to be more tilted toward quality. Uh, you do not want to make binary decisions uh, in the marketplace. Today, obviously, is a huge momentum type of move, which most of 2020 has been, quite frankly. And when we wrote a report on Friday and talked about unprecedented moves in the market, unprecedented again today. So 2020 has been a year of unprecedented uh, behavior in terms of fundamentals, the economy, stocks in general. So we don't think that's going to end anytime soon. And given days like this, you don't want to base your investment strategy on a day like today. You still want to uh, tilt your quality uh, to in increasing that that the side in terms of higher quality, number one. Number two, you don't want to make a growth versus value call, I think, today. Uh, you still want to make a stock market call, meaning the stock market is a market of stocks, and you want to, again, increase your quality tilt in the portfolio, but also have a balanced approach with respect to looking at structural growth, cyclical growth, and secular growth, uh, the kind of the three engines of how companies grow. And so whether or not you're being a growth or value investor, I don't think you have to make a binary type decision. So too, uh, in terms of cyclicals and or small cap versus large cap. Uh, so let's applaud today's great market. Uh, let's not jump on today's winners and, and sell today's losers. Let's be disciplined in our portfolios. We still believe in our 3650 target on the S&P and 3850 for the next 12 months in terms of Canada, uh, 18,200 on the TSX and 18,700 uh, for the next 12 months. Uh, Michael brought up a great point in terms of Ottawa and what that means. Indeed, we do see a change in the Senate, but again, let's cross that bridge when we get to it. I believe the market clearly, um, as Margaret brought up, is sniffing out a Goldilocks scenario, which we had most recently in 2019 in the markets. And if you kind of go back uh, in history, uh, clearly one of the most uh, dramatic and popular ways of looking at Goldilocks was looking at 1995, 1996, 
in, in the markets. We continue to believe that North American markets in general are the best position equity markets in the world in terms of assets, meaning the best companies in the world. Uh, and we still believe uh, that this big bull market is alive and driven principally in the U.S. by technology communication services, uh, consumer discretionary, very select retailers, select consumer retailers, uh, consumer staples retailers, I'm sorry, and, uh, select healthcare, which you're seeing here today, and then very select big money center banks that have scalable assets. A uh, reminder, I'm sorry for everyone on the line, that content uh, is available to you at bmocm.com or re reach out to your relationship manager. All of us on the line here today have published a tremendous amount of, of research over the last several days, and it's all available to you as a client of BMO. So again, it's bmocm.com uh, or reach out to your relationship manager. With respect to a question on the line, uh, Margaret, uh, on, on yields in particular, and pick a time frame, uh, short end, long end of the curve, does the amount of stimulus matter? Uh, and how would you uh, project your, or change your projections, I'm sorry, based on the size of, and timing of stimulus, quite frankly? Thanks, Brian. You know, the stimulus does matter for the yield curve in terms of the economic recovery and the support for the recovery. And part of it, you know, with regard to timing is the the sooner in face, of course, of um, the rising infections and the shutting down of uh, different areas, uh, the longer it takes to get the stimulus package, uh, the greater the ultimate package has to be to offset the economic damage that's done while we're waiting for a package. So the timing matters, the size of the package matters. You need it to be large enough to support the areas of the economy that are most impacted and, of course, to support uh, the consumer. Uh, and so it needs to be large enough to, to accomplish this, but not too large to be wasteful. And so and both of them do matter for, for yields. And the sooner we get it, I think the better, you know, the, well, I guess it depends on which way you're positioned, whether it's better or worse. Um, but the sooner you get it, uh, I think, you know, it just under, it, it supports the bearish underpinnings in the marketplace. Uh, again, though, if it's a trillion dollar package or a three trillion dollar package, you know, the impact on that is probably limited to, uh, you know, five, six basis points if we're talking, you know, on the long end. Because the reality is it's a it's a bridge, right? The fiscal package is a bridge to to get us through this pandemic period. And uh, the reality at the end of the day is what does the employment situation look like and the health of the consumer and the health of the economy. So it matters. Uh, it matters with regard to timing and size. Uh, but it's probably only worth a handful of basis points uh, in the long end and nothing in the front end. Thank you. With that, I'll ask Michael a question. Uh, with respect to Ottawa, how does the situation between the United States change, if any, uh, with respect to policy? What are the one or two biggest items that that you would kind of earmark from an economics perspective uh, with a split uh, Congress versus uh, democratically controlled Congress, Michael? Sure. Well, well uh, th thanks, Brian. Well, I mean, the first thing is that w one that does not require Congress is is the uh, uh, the pulling of support by the administration, the new administration, for a Keystone XL pipeline uh, that that was having issues anyway, getting through the various regulatory and other channels uh, in in the U.S. But uh, 
uh, with, without sort of uh, support from from you know the highest level, uh, th- th- that is likely to fade pretty pretty quickly. Uh, so I mean th- 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 that's the immediate. In terms of uh, with a split Congress now, and as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the chances of getting big spending, uh, uh, which would arguably be positive for growth and therefore positive for Canadian exports to the U.S. and therefore positive for Canadian growth, that, that, that's a little less likely. That's not to say the U.S. economy is not going to be supportive uh, for the Canadian economy, but not to the same degree if we would have, say, had that blue wave, which you mentioned uh, before. And the same thing on the tax hike side. Tax hike side, the uh, you know Ottawa is desperately looking for ways in which to uh, you know right its fiscal ship once we get past the pandemic and uh, is eyeing both spending and tax measures and uh, eventually and uh, you know um, if if we were to get a move towards higher taxes in the U.S. that would provide a little bit of cover for Canada to do that, which of course is probably not going to be there again at least at least for the next couple of years. But the other aspect of it too is, and again this might not require Congress, it probably doesn't given the authority of the of the uh, the president on the matters of trade uh is is that we're likely to get the sort of the the um um the, the the rancorous rancorous sort of environment uh uh where uh you know um, uh, tariffs say for example on aluminum get, get put in uh, uh w- without any uh sort of discussion beforehand as to you know why Potentially, Canada's uh, aluminum, you know, exports are surging in one particular uh, category, uh, and uh, so I do think there'll be a little bit more discussion. And to the extent that the administration would need some support, uh, uh, again, on uh, not only from a North American but also a global perspective on on climate change, that's also in a very important uh, aspect of the uh, the Canadian federal government's uh, posture. And therefore, uh, I, I suspect that we will get, uh, uh, you know. Um, perhaps a, a little more cover for Ottawa to move more meaningfully on, on measures uh, with respect to climate change north of the border. Great. In the meantime, I'd like to share some of the questions that we're receiving from our clients uh, around the world here this morning. And it really centers around, I think, the, the big thing is, is the time to sell the tech stocks uh, or the stay-at-home stocks or the mobile society stocks, as we like to call them. And I would say the answer is no. Again, going back to our our formal commentary with respect to not making any binary decisions in a momentum-laden market. This is clearly a momentum-laden market. We are reacting in a very positive uh, light with respect to the virus. And from a common sense perspective, we need to take a couple steps back and say, it's going to take time to unfold. Uh, as Michael and Margaret very deftly said, uh, with respect to the economy, we are still in recovery mode. There are still uh, questions to be answered in terms of how we're going to grow going forward. And what that looks like with respect to the interest rate scenario. So the next couple of quarters are key with respect to the U.S. economy. And then obviously how that works in terms of stock market performance, if we're going to start to see a broadening out of the market. Remember, fundamentals drive markets longer term. Fundamentals don't change in a day just because of the virus. The market obviously is a discounting function. But if the virus continues to increase its strength, uh, clearly the likelihood of, of additional stay-at-home orders and lockdowns increase, therefore the fundamental demand for the stay-at-home stocks and the tech stocks uh, that really drive that, and communication services for that matter, from the fundamental demand uh, aspect will only increase. So again, we think it would be too early to be selling these stocks uh, from a longer-term perspective with respect to building and maintaining these uh, in your portfolio. On behalf of BMO Financial Group and BMO Capital Markets, I want to thank everyone. And of course, 
uh, Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory and Head of Fixed Income Commodity and Currency Strategy, Margaret Karens, for joining us today. Just a, another quick reminder uh, that all the content uh, that you heard here this morning was contained in research reports that all of us have written and all of our uh, colleagues in global markets with respect to equity research, fixed income research, commodity research, uh, and of course, our great economics team over the last week or so. All of it's contained at bmocm.com. You can also reach out to your relationship manager. With that, thank you so much for joining us. We're here for you. If you have any questions or need additional things from us, please reach out. Please stay well and safe, and thank you very much. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.